Welcome to the Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are Sam and Aaron. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 45 of the Lawyerist podcast, where we talk to John Suh, the CEO of LegalZoom. Before that, we need your help. It takes money to keep the podcast going, money for hosting, equipment, editing, and we put in a fair amount of time besides. Our sponsors are only covering a small part of the cost, so we're asking you to support the podcast with a contribution. You already pay 99 cents for a song on iTunes or Amazon or Google Play or wherever you buy your music. Uh, We think the guests we've brought on the podcast are worth at least that. So if you can help out, please visit lawyerist.com slash podcast and click on support the podcast. You can pay for one episode or 100, and your contribution will keep the podcast coming every week in 2016. Also, please subscribe to the show in iTunes or using your favorite podcast app, or just check it out every week at lawyerist.com slash podcast. If you enjoy our show, we would really appreciate it if you take a second and give us a rating in iTunes. Our new 30-minute WordPress setup guide is available at lawyerist.com slash guides. You can also just click on guides at the top of the site. Use the coupon code podcast to get a 50% discount on your order. Just enter the word podcast into the checkout form. Today's podcast is sponsored by Ruby Receptionists. You are more productive when you aren't interrupted, and Ruby can help with that. Ruby answers our phones, and I love being able to trust them to do a great job. So visit callruby.com slash lawyerist to get a risk-free trial with Ruby. My conversation with John Suh was really interesting, and because we kept talking, it's a little longer than usual. It's about access to justice, the unauthorized practice of law, cyborg lawyers, and whether lawyers should treat LegalZoom like the boogeyman. So instead of our usual introductory banter, we're just going to dive into that conversation. Hi, this is John Sub. I am the CEO of LegalZoom. And that's probably the shortest introduction we've had because everybody knows what you mean, I think. Um, <laughs> I, I can say I've been at the helm for the last 10 years, if that's yeah. helpful. <laughs> <laughs> no, no more necessary. Um, I asked you to be on my podcast after listening to you speak at the Clio Cloud Conference where you gave a keynote presentation and um, really provocative and I thought well-received, but um, but I had some follow-up questions and I wanted to talk a little bit more about it. So... I, I guess I want to start by talking about LegalZoom, um, and one of the things that I feel like doesn't get talked about much is sort of the nuts and bolts of how stuff works behind the scenes. So I'd like to know from you, where does the stuff come from? Who who makes the forms? What is the what does the LegalZoom sort of back end factory look like? We have an internal team that we call uh, our legal architects. These are lawyers. Uh, largely with subject matter expertise, whether it's in trademarks or in nonprofits or in estate planning. And they will develop the primary template and the branching tree logic to help deliver a core service. Then our paralegal and legal team will ensure that it matches the 50 state slash 3,000 county nuances. And our plan attorneys will regularly review all of the documents in all jurisdictions. So you think about it, there's a a division of roles and responsibilities between our legal engineering team and 
the lawyers in our legal plan. And then we have a second process, which is we keep track of changes in the law into government forms through software and our own internal review. And, you know, the innate advantage of being the largest deliverer uh, or filer of legal documents in every state is that if there is a change in the law that somehow LexisNexis or Westlaw did not uh, anticipate in their various services that we subscribe to, we will pretty much find out the same day that any change is enacted because we're filing in that courthouse or in that secretary of state, and then we'll immediately uh, react to the market. So it sounds like the legal architect is a little bit like the senior partner who um, says to the new associates, uh, go tell me what the law is in all 50 states for this thing, um, and then bring it back and together as a team, they incorporate it into the thing that they are producing. Yeah, that right? yeah, that sounds right. I think it's just thinking through that there's a core internal team that will develop an architect template, think through the branching tree logic, um, figure out the nuances, and then we have a double check with lawyers in all these jurisdictions that will then evaluate and review each of the templates and documents to ensure that those practicing specifically in that state agree uh, with that nuance. And then there's a maintenance component that we will subscribe to a variety of services that allow us to proactively change or amend a form uh, based on uh, proposed changes to the law or other times simply because we file and uh, every courthouse in the U.S. and we file something in every state pretty much not only every day, sometimes every hour. Uh, if there is a change, we usually find about out about it quite quickly um, because we're literally in that courthouse uh, in some cases every single day. Is, is that because uh, LegalZoom customers will um, give you feedback or complain or, or run into a problem, or how does that come back to you? I think it's just the size and scale of our business. We have, we have served over 3 million customers. Yeah. And so um, when it comes to an entity that, that files with your state or municipal government agency, I, I, you know, I would say for almost every courthouse or state, LegalZoom would be the number one filer. Um, in every jurisdiction. Gotcha. You know, this is something that came out during your keynote, and um, I think uh, maybe we're not being entirely fair to LegalZoom when we call it a document assembly or a document prep company, because you actually partner with a good number of lawyers, don't you, to do to to add that that legal component to the service? Absolutely. I think one of the things that's interesting to share is. In chapter one of our business, which I count as 2000-2010, we were very much legal document software, a legal document factory, if you will. So we were often positioned in the consumer's mind as an alternative to a lawyer. In 2010, and in the lawyer's mind, I think. <laughs> oh yeah, and many and many solo practitioners we were considered uh, as well. So I think in 2010 things changed dramatically for us in that we added lawyers within a legal plan. Mm-hmm. And so we work with firms um, that are licensed in each state that we partner with to deliver superior quality to our customers. And once we started to reach out to lawyers to partner with us in the delivery of services, our whole world opened up and we saw different avenues to improve quality and improve efficiency. And so now that we're kind of five years down that path, when you think of LegalZoom, it's much more about how can a technology-enabled lawyer deliver higher quality with greater efficiency and greater convenience. I, I like that technology-enabled lawyer. There was a great uh, presentation at Tech Show 
uh, right before Tech Show a couple of years ago where um, somebody brought along an Iron Man mask to show that lawyers plus technology is superior to lawyers or technology. Um, and I, it sounds like that's what you're trying to do. Um, what, but what was missing from like the web-based document prep? Did you, did you ultimately decide, I guess technology can't do everything? Well, I'd say from the outset, the founders of the company 15 years ago had always envisioned working hand in hand with lawyers. They were lawyers themselves. Three of our co-founders are lawyers and actually the fourth became a lawyer through the process. <laughs> uh, so literally, uh, he didn't go to law school, but uh, apprenticed under our general counsel for huh. five years, then passed the bar and is licensed as a lawyer, having never having gone to law school. So it was always in the DNA of the company to embrace lawyers. However, it was very difficult as we navigated the regulatory schema of the U.S. to actually intertwine lawyers into the delivery of services. And so it took us a while to figure out how do we employ a legal plan to improve access to justice and then incorporate lawyers into the delivery, into the supply chain of the delivery of services. So I think uh, it was more a matter of time and a matter of flexibility, and a matter of navigating through a fairly complicated patchwork uh, of, of regulations. How should lawyers think about working with LegalZoom? Are you sort of aiming to offer them a turnkey law practice um, where the lawyer ends up having the, um, the FaceTime with the client, but you provide the clients, you provide the at least the first draft of the uh, documents that the lawyer is preparing for the client, um, and you do some of the, the additional work of managing the law practice so that you're taking most of that stuff off the lawyer's place plate and they can just plug in and go? Is that kind of the idea? I think there's a, if I look at five years from now, what will our relationship be with lawyers? I think mm -hmm. that is one outcome that will be prevalent in certain practice areas. Hmm. But what I would say is, I could see five years from now, I was working, LegalZoom will likely be working with somewhere between 20,000 and 50,000 lawyers. Hmm. Um, and the nature of that relationship will differ. I think that would be a different relationship in trademarks than it may be in estate planning, than it may be in small business law. Gotcha. So I'd say it will be flexible, but typically what LegalZoom will provide is a technology platform that enhances the quality and efficiency in the delivery of legal services. Lawyers will be providing the advice, subject matter expertise, uh, and local expertise to make sure that the customer is getting the right solution for their needs. So we're working hand in hand, uh, but I think each practice area lends itself to a different formulation. Do you see lawyers bringing business into LegalZoom? For example, it totally makes sense to me that a customer might come to LegalZoom, um, start a document or something in LegalZoom, and finish it with the help of a lawyer. Do you also see lawyers who the client comes to them and they turn to LegalZoom for the first draft of, say, an estate plan? Well, that actually happens quite a bit. Does Believe it? it or not, the, 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 what happens now, though, that's a little bit interesting, is we get a ton of referrals from AMLA 100 and AMLA 200 lawyers. Hmm. So let's say you are a seventh year associate doing tech mergers and acquisitions at Olathe and Watkins. Mm -hmm. So you're highly, highly specialist, highly skilled. You've, you've earned your stripes with your 10,000 hours multiple times over. And y your mom and dad ask you for a last will. 
gotcha. you'd probably say. Uh, I don't honestly know how to do that. <laughs> I've never done one before. Theoretically, I've learned the principles that apply to it, but I've never actually done one, nor should I do one for you. And typically, those corporate lawyers would not have the connections in a state planning lot center to have a natural place, but they also understand that what their family or friends need can be serviced at a very high quality level through LegalZoom. So they'll often refer to us rather than for, and we, we even get that for some fairly complicated, say a you know, celebrity athlete um, had turned to his lawyer that negotiates his sponsorships and his um, you know, high ticket contracts and said, I'm doing a nonprofit. And, you know, that, and the lawyer said, well, then you don't want me to do it. One, I'm too expensive and I'm no good at it. Hmm. Uh, and you don't need a firm to do it either. So just go to LegalZoom. Interesting. Um, in fact, that was uh, Jim Furyk. <laughs> and so he, he then reached out to us as well for nonprofits around this world. They, if you're referring me to LegalZoom, then they, you know, other nonprofits need to get the word out. So he reached out to us uh, and uh, I said, hey, that's a great story. Why don't you just say that, uh, encapsulate that in 45 <laughs> seconds? We'll put it on air. And now he's actually <laughs> doing that on some of our cool. uh, commercials, helping get the word out to other nonprofits. So oddly enough, the lawyers that refer to us most frequently End up ending up being highly specialized solos and lawyers at very large law firms. Huh. So you're just part of their referral network. You mentioned the uh, 10,000 hours, uh, which is was also a feature of your keynote. Um, and I, I wanted to throw it out there because I thought your your perspective and your facts and figures on it were really interesting. You were pointing out that because solo and small firm lawyers have so much administrative and marketing work to do, it takes them a long time to get to the same point, let's use 10,000 hours as a somewhat arbitrary number, um, to, to become an expert in their practice area. It takes a solo or small firm lawyer longer than it would take somebody at a big law firm where most of that marketing and administrative work is not on their plate. Um, say, say more about that. Uh, summarize what you're, the point you were making as part of the presentation. I think you were aiming at, um, and, and so you want to work with lawyers who are expert and it's harder to get those lawyers out of solo and small firms. Is that right? Sure. I, I think thematically what we're getting to is there's the business of law and there's the practice of law. And what makes a lawyer a great lawyer is many reps and many hours invested in their craft, which would be the practice of law, mm -hmm. helping chase down clients and chase down bills and figuring out how to market on Google and negotiating your lease. And a variety of these activities are not terribly conducive to a better legal practice. Mm -hmm. They may be a necessity. So when we look at solo practitioners, what we found is that 39% of their working hours are spent on the business of law rather than the practice of law. Versus at a typical large law firm, you're looking at more 9% of their time is on the business of law. And actually one of the most efficient places in the, in the supply chain of, of law firms is you don't have to be 500 plus to be efficient. In a small boutique law firm of 10 to 20 lawyers, only 8% of their time is spent on the business of law. That's really so interesting. Do you know why that is? Do you have some, some insight into why that might be? Sure. I think generally speaking, I would say first, um, a unit of one that must do everything is a terribly inefficient deliverer of any supply chain yeah. <laughs> for the most part. I think there are certain practice areas like DUI, for example, 
um, or some portions of family law where that actually can be helpful uh, and, a, and a solo can be extraordinarily good at delivering services. But for the most part, you want to have someone else handling administration, collectibles, receivables, financing, and marketing so you can focus on the practice of law. Right. That doesn't help a lawyer any more than it helps a doctor. <laughs> you want the doctor helping patients and doing research and getting better at their craft. So I'd say first to the solo as a unit of delivery across all business is not terribly efficient. Um, now, I think at the 500 plus employees, there is an efficiency that comes from a, a, uh, an organization that works at scale. But there's also inefficiencies sometimes that come with that size where there's a lot of uh, receptionists and executive assistants and perks and a variety of things that make it a little less efficient. So n large companies, ex incredibly large companies typically are known for quality, consistency, stability, but efficiency isn't always their number one value system. Gotcha. I think in a in a small boutique of ten to twenty, you can divide up the work to folks. You can match the human capital to the task at hand, and you can still, I think, devise a supply chain that is very efficient in the delivery of services. But you don't have some of the inefficiencies that come with very large organizations. And I suppose and it's still small enough that one person can kind of pay attention to the whole organization and ferret out inefficiencies. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you get a tremendous leverage from a group of a dozen versus you on your own, right? It doesn't mean that 10,000 people are more efficient than a dozen, though. That's interesting. So let me switch gears. Um, and you sort of mentioned practice versus business. Um, LegalZoom has very famously been involved in a number of lawsuits, and I think still might be involved in some lawsuits, whatever, ethics, things about around the idea of the unauthorized practice of law. And I'm not going to ask you about those lawsuits. Um, I, not, I'm not much of a fan of protectionism as a way to save lawyers. Um, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts about um, that question of what the practice of law actually is. Um, it seems like LegalZoom has redefined, redefined some things as uh, not the practice of law by turning them into automated forms that don't require a lawyer's intervention to prepare a nonprofit formation or an LLC formation. I mean, what, what do you, how do you think we should look at what the practice of law is and define it? Well, I would personally, as a non-lawyer, stay away from defining the practice of law. Mm -hmm. uh, what I would say is that any definition of the law must be used to protect the public from those that are doing harm and not be used to shield the legal profession from any competition. Uh, Professor Oliver Goodenough out of the University of Vermont um, had spoken at the uh, summit on the future delivery legal services at the American Bar Association, and he mentioned that the design of the legal system, is is its specific design is to limit competition and limit access to the law. Mm -hmm. It is a feature of the way it is constructed, not a bug. And I think that gets to the heart of what regulation should be about. Is it about protecting the public or protecting a profession from competition? As long as it's about protecting the public and you can go back to that and it's consistent within that, I think people are on the right side of regulation. Um, you know, I think we've seen a number of countries have changed their regulatory structure with just that in mind, looking at what they're doing and saying, hey, this stuff doesn't really protect the public, and so they're changing it. Um, Canada, um, Australia, Great Britain, they, they've shifted the focus from lawyers to entities. 
uh, and they've included non-law firm entities, um, and I think you would be folded, LegalZoom would be folded into that. Um, so let me talk about that a little bit. If you were going to change the way ethical regulation looked in the U.S., what would it what would it look like to you? What would you hope to see? Uh, so I should because uh, because LegalZoom is not fair disclosure. Regulated. We are actively involved uh, right. in the UK as an alternative business structure. We were licensed in January, mm-hmm. um, and so we have looked um, with uh, keen curiosity into what has occurred in Australia and in Canada, and what is occurring uh, in the UK, and in fact are an active participant uh, in that change. So with that being said, when I look at uh, Entity-based regulation. Let me share some of the thoughts of my colleagues, uh, Chaz uh, Rampenthal and, and uh, James Peters. So some of our in-house attorneys um, at LegalZoom have thought long and hard uh, about entity-based regulation. Mm-hmm. And I'd start by saying the overall concept is to remove or relax the rules that inhibit innovation around the business of law while ensuring the professionalism, high ethics, and quality for the actual practice of law, Mm -hmm. right? So entity-based regulation will grant a for-profit corporation the ability to give legal services directly to the consumer. The businesses would be allowed to employ licensed attorneys and other paraprofessionals to render legal advice and take on investment necessary to utilize technology and bring about efficiencies to reduce the cost of legal services uh, to the consumer. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, the regulation of the individual attorney would remain relatively unchanged. Professional ethics would remain in place for the protection of the client and the professional. Attorneys working for a licensed entity would still be subject to discipline, including suspension or revocation of a license uh, for misconduct, and they would still be required to meet the state-based standards for admission to the bar. So we really want to separate the business of law from the practice of the law, and in some cases, the entities would still and should, frankly, have ethical obligations. The entity would be subject to malpractice or other consumer complaint resolution. The obligations would be enforced with fines, restrictions on practice, license suspension, revocation. So when we think about what needs to change, it's not changing for the absence of regulation or deregulating. It's actually applying the correct amount of regulation to to better align with the objectives of the system. And so in in general it sounds like you're you're comfortable with that idea that LegalZoom might become a regulated entity. We are a regulated entity. Yeah. Regardless, <laughs> we don't exist outside of the law. We're just regulated in different ways. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the, the system, when we think about the overall objective, for LegalZoom, we're a cause-based company. So we want to democratize law. We feel that fundamentally, if the law is, can only be afforded by 1% of the population and less than 1% of businesses. And that 99% of businesses and the 84% of Americans that, that are part of the middle class, the law is out of reach. Well, then our economy and our democracy don't function as intended by the founding fathers. So unless we democratize law and ensure that every family and every small business can access the protection of the law, things don't make any sense. You know, there's been an interesting... Um uh, sort of dichotomy that sprung up on Twitter, I think just over the last few days, but maybe I was missing it until recently. Um, but it's the distinction between um, access to justice and access to lawyers. Uh, lawyers like to look at access to justice as if it means access to lawyers, but it seems to me like um, 
LegalZoom might stand for the proposition that it doesn't necessarily mean access to lawyers. It can mean access to tools and um, forms, templates, whatever, that information that allows you to use the law, access the law without a lawyer. Uh, I think that's fair. I think that access to justice can come in many different forms. I think content is part of that. Um, However, I would say that our formula for delivering legal services would integrate forms and lawyers and documents and lawyers Mm -hmm. so that I I think fundamentally when you look at the U.S., if I asked 100 Americans, do you have a doctor? A majority of Americans would raise their hand and be able to give me a name of their doctor. Mm -hmm. If I asked that same 100 Americans, do you have a lawyer? I would be shocked if one in 10 could name one. People like to say it though. (laughs) <laughs> People would love to say it. There's a power to saying, go see my lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> Usually it's said in anger yeah. <laughs> or in frustration. But I would say, you know, for us, access to the lie, I believe that, you know, I'm the son of two doctors, which means, number one, I'm genetically predisposed to terrible handwriting. <laughs> and two, when I think about the practice of law, I often draw parallels to the practice of medicine, having watched a father in uh in managed care as one of the first doctors at Kaiser um, as a specialist and a mother who was in primary care um, as a solo uh, working outside uh, of managed care. So when I look at that, I see that for most Americans, medicine without a doctor is not medicine. We love whole foods. We love our vitamins. We love probiotics. We like to eat healthy. We like to exercise. People love yoga. They love acupuncture. But when your child has a 105 degree temperature, you are largely going to see a doctor. Mm -hmm. And I think similarly for most Americans, when there is a pressing legal need, they want to see a lawyer. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that the lawyer is the only solution. It doesn't mean that advice from a lawyer can't be encapsulated in a pithy, concise, and legally accurate and hard-hitting video to help you through your legal needs. But it does mean, for the majority of Americans, access to the law means we have to bring attorney-delivered services within their price range and increase the level of quality. You, this is a, I'm going to shift gears again, uh, which is you talked a lot about net promoter score and how important it is both to uh, LegalZoom's products and um, how important it is when you decide who to partner with outside of law. Um, I I did a post about net promoter score recently to try and demystify it for people. Um, I think Mm -hmm. it's fair to sum it up as um, it is a very simple question that gets to the heart of are you making your clients happy or not? Um, tell me, tell me though, what what is the benefit do you see of focusing on Net Promoter Score um, for you and for your lawyer partners, and and how does it come up short in your experience, if if at all? So I think the positive thing is when you look at most professionals, most businesses, they want to do right by their customers. Right? Everyone wants to take care of their customers. You can go to a partner at the largest law firm and they say, our success is measured by our customers. Satisfaction with our services. That's how we earn additional business. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how we earn referrals. That is, you know, our reputation. It comes from the delivery of our services. However, most people don't know how to measure it. And in my experience as an entrepreneur, if you measure something, you can improve upon it. If you do not measure it, it must mean it's not that important. 
Mm-hmm. Almost everything can be measured. And if you want an organization to consistently iterate and improve such that a year from now, three years from now, five years from now, you're dramatically better in delivering that service than you are today, you need objective metrics to keep you honest. We need that within our organization to say, yes, we truly care about the customer, but what do our customers perceive? Net Promoter is your customer verification and validation of the customer experience. If you surprise and delight your customers, Net Promoter goes up because it's only measured by their response. So I believe the advantage and power of a Net Promoter score is to align the entire organization around the customer experience on a single metric. And by the way, when you use net promoter score, you're using a metric that you can measure the quality of customer satisfaction, even though it's not truly a satisfaction metric. It's about their willingness to refer. But you can measure your performance against an Apple, against an Amazon, Mm -hmm. against the Whole Foods, right? Against the AARP. Yeah. Because so many different organizations in a wide variety of industries have published their net promoter scores. You now know where you stand relative to other industries, as well as relative to how you performed a year ago. When LegalZoom started measuring net promoter, we were at a 32% NPS. We're now in the 65% range. The attorneys, when we started, the attorney delivered services started, the, the average solo attorney According to our research, we do this every year, typically has a net promoter in the 4 to 6% range, which is actually good that it's positive. Many industries average a negative score. Mm-hmm. So, um, but 4 to 6%. And our attorneys, after exhaustive interviews and, and surveys and secret shopping and this careful cultivation of which firms we would entrust the LegalZoom brand to, they opened up with 6%. <laughs> so they were and, and, these, and these are your lawyer partners. These are the ones who are actually working with clients directly, not the ones building the forms, right? Yes. the in, Our internal lawyers never interface directly with the client. Yeah. Only the lawyers in our legal plan interface directly with the customer. And they launched at 6%, but today they are consistently hitting 70 to 75% net promoter scores. I did not think it would be possible to achieve that level of consistency of quality through an independent network of attorneys. But the team has developed the systems, feedback, training processes such that, and our, own, our, our partners, you know, the partners of our plan firms have collaborated together on what works to move net promoter, what they found effective and share best practice, you know, between different states. I mean, that's pretty incredible. So I think that is the power. It's pretty incredible. It's, it's a fascinating story, actually. And I, 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 told the, I, I told the folks, you just have to get north of 50%. <laughs> um, and we have a criteria. If you can't deliver a service north of 50%, no matter how much it may mean economically, kill it. So We will not offer that service if our customers don't realize the quality and can't recognize the quality of delivery, don't offer it. So one of the objections that I hear when I talk to lawyers about Net Promoter Score, um, and I have been over the last few weeks, is, um, but often I'm giving my clients bad news that they don't want to hear. Of course, they're not going to give me a good Net Promoter Score. Um, and I'm not I'm not sure that that's that's right, but uh, but it seems like something you your attorney partners must have had to overcome because even when you're doing estate plans and forming forming companies and things, there are times when you're telling people things they don't want to hear. Um, how do you still deliver them an experience that makes them want to refer you to other people and rate you highly? 
Well, I think instinctively, many a educated licensed professional hates to be judged by a non-licensed professional. <laughs> and so a whole set of gut reactions say, that's not valid, that doesn't work. That will come up. However, when you think about doctors, doctors are often delivering very bad news. Mm-hmm. And yet, they can still provide an extraordinary level of service that's recognized by the customer in some of life's harshest moments. And I think lawyers have that same opportunity. In fact, when you get, when you're in front of an emotionally charged customer, that is when your bedside manners, if you will, as a lawyer, are most important. Mm-hmm. It's not what you're communicating, it's how you communicate it. They're equally important. Right? Both are important. But many lawyers say, no, I'm just going to deliver the news. Well, that's like a doctor delivering the news regardless of whether you're a father that just had a newly born child and is facing a, a, a life-threatening health situation. Mm-hmm. Well, yes, it's the fact, but you still need to be sensitive to the customer, explain it in plain English, and help think through the solutions going forward. So we found that even bankruptcy lawyers can have very positive net promoter scores. Mm-hmm. And when you think about it, in some ways you can rephrase, bankruptcy is actually a wonderful thing in the U.S. because without it, people would live lives of indentured servitude. Mm -hmm. There are countries, well-developed economies, where if an entrepreneur fails, he is personally liable for all of the debts of the business. Hmm. Which means, to be an entrepreneur means putting your family at risk every time. Yeah. That is a devastatingly difficult situation to encourage entrepreneurship. Bankruptcy, to give you a fresh start, is actually a wonderful thing in the system. That and that's become a common utilized. way to talk about it, is because it is a much more positive outlook. Yeah, and, it, and a lot of those folks were in a, getting called by creditors, variety of things. But my point is, whether it's an estate plan or a business formation or a trademark or an intellectual property, there's an opportunity to develop a real rapport with your clients and to deliver an extraordinary customer experience. So you're not just cheating by getting rid of clients who you might have to give bad news to. No. It really can be done. (laughs) I I, I think when you really look at the the wide variety of practice here, and and think we handle business formations, we do LLCs, nonprofits, DBAs, trademarks, living trusts, last wills. We offer a wide variety of services. Mm And to get a consistently high net promoter across all of them and across an attorney network that's handling advice in every situation imaginable, it comes down to things that are outside, am I in a litigious profession? Mm -hmm. It comes down to, do I offer a transparent process and a transparent price? Do I speak in plain English? Do I recognize the emotions of the moment and adapt to them? Ultimately, when you think about malpractice, lawyers sued for malpractice is the same as doctors sued for malpractice. A lot more has to do with how a customer perceives your bedside manners than the actual outcome of the medical case or the legal case. That makes a lot of sense. And that's the the trick to getting past that 6%. So here's my final question to you. Uh, One of it seems the favorite way to talk about LegalZoom is um, how is LegalZoom eating lawyers' lunch, how to prevent LegalZoom from eating lawyers' lunch. Um, the lunch metaphor comes up all the damn time. So um, how do you think lawyers should keep LegalZoom from eating their lunches? Well, I think it's a question 
that comes from framing it legal Zoom versus lawyers. Whereas the core message that I like to share is if LegalZoom five years from now is synonymous with technology-enabled lawyers, is actually lawyers embracing and utilizing technology in our platform to enhance the delivery of legal services and create greater access to the law. So I would say kind of assuming that we're at odds with each other is very consistent with chapter one of our business that ended five years ago. And the future of our business is really working with lawyers hand in hand. So like many things, lawyers need to get with the program and see what it's like today. Yeah, well, I think um, kind of digging a hole in the ground, sticking your head under it and saying technology shouldn't impact me. Very few industries have been able to survive that practice. Mm-hmm. You know, technology is a tool like any other. And you might as well use every tool at your disposal to offer the most consistent quality, right? And the most efficient delivery of any service that's out there. And I think the law is is no exception. Well, John, thank you so much for being with us today. I really enjoyed our conversation. My pleasure. Just kidding. After ending the interview, John and I actually kept talking, and he told me I could hit record, so I did. And this is going to start a little bit abruptly, but we're going to pick up with talking about the unauthorized practice of law and LegalZoom's experience with it. And so we're just going to dive into it, and I will play the rest of our conversation until we did finally hang up the phone. So here is the rest of our conversation. Our UPL budget today Mm -hmm. versus what it was five years from now, it's less than a tenth. We don't have a major outstanding UPL issue at LegalZoom for the first time (laughs) since I've been taking over 10 years. We have almost nothing outstanding that's material. We've resolved South Carolina. We've resolved North Carolina decisively in our favor, which allows us to provide our services in all 50 states. And I suspect the challenges, there'll be a few, but largely people have moved on. Yeah. Well, I think uh, the reality has intruded. <laughs> yeah. UPL isn't going to save us. <laughs> reality and $16 million we've spent on litigation <laughs> and defense. Expensive reality. <laughs> gotcha. um, but that was nice. We are spending one-tenth of what we used to spend. But the And now the shift has really been is how can – so, you know, it's radically different. Just I, I had never been invited to a state bar mm-hmm. or an American bar. Hmm. event in the first eight years of running LegalZoom. Yeah. In the last year, year and a half, you know, we've been speaking actually at a number of state bar events with the American Bar Association because a lot of lawyers, particularly the next generation of leaders that are now coming up, are saying, well, they, they grew up, you know, millennials and baby boomers, they grow up and eventually they become the people in charge. <laughs> you know, you see this natural progression as cohorts evolve over time. And what we've seen is people are now saying, well, how do I embrace technology? What's the right solution? What's the future of this industry? And they're engaging us in a dialogue. And that's never occurred before. Well, and it makes sense to go to the person you see as your competitor for that for that information, I guess. So. I think, but I think they're realizing we're not the competitor. Hmm. That's, uh... it, 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 let's let's say if you're a DUI lawyer, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> is not a competitor at all <laughs> for your services. We don't offer it. But you know what is Uber mm-hmm. and Google? Because ten years from now, I have a five year old. There is no way when he's sixteen he will need to learn how to drive a car in Los Angeles. 
And in fact, it may be legal be, for him to essentially ride in a self-driving car drunk. Another no, five the years self-driving down the road. car is fine. It's just a taxi service, right? Yeah. <laughs> and statistically, there's they've got one-tenth the accident rate of a person that drives that may be texting or may be inebriated. So it's safer with much less fatality. And you would ha- you'd repurpose all of the garages mm-hmm. in people's homes and all of the public parking spaces. And it'd be a subscription driverless car, largely electronic is, is likely. Right. So what's a bigger fear? I actually believe as you're going to DUIs 10 years from now, that the sheer volume of DUI cases will, there's no way it doesn't reduce by 75% or more. Mm-hmm. So what's a greater threat? Well, technology is threatening you, but it could also be at some point a product liability law kicks in and you can't drive a car drunk. Mm-hmm. Not because you've been stopped for DUI, because if I sense alcohol in the air, I'm going to make, I'm going to force you to breathe into it. It could be a product liability issue, Mm -hmm. but these are the changes that really can threaten because it can undermine 75% of the volume of an industry. It's the, it's the end around lawyers, not the competition, whether or not it's, it's real and present, uh, between two, two entities, lawyers and legal zoom and whoever that are actually trying to provide legal services. The danger is just that some of those problems go away. Yeah, I think we've become a somewhat of a focal point for the imagination of lawyers. <laughs> yes, like you think we might be the the boogeyman, but think of it. We're we're a few hundred million in revenues at LegalZoom. Yeah. We're not insignificant, but less than one percent of the legal spending in the United States on spy small businesses and families. So when you think of it, there's a disordinate attention placed on we have relatively small markets here. I, I, you know, I, I would think we would have billions of dollars of revenues. <laughs> you know, that would make more sense to me as the largest brand name in the legal sector. So when I look at the opinions or fear that a company like ours might engender in certain kinds of lawyers, it's disproportionate to our relative market share impact. Mm-hmm. And I think in some ways, the deeper concern is that the business model of solo practitioners now is deeply challenged. Some yeah. statistics say that the average income is $50,000, which doesn't support the cost of law school. Right. And the reality is uh, the median solo practitioner with 20 years of experience will take home less money than a first year associate in AMLA 100 from fresh out of law school. Mm-hmm. So the profession is deeply challenged. They're charging 40 to 50% of the billable hourly rates of these AMLA 100 lawyers, and they're taking home 6% of the profits of those same lawyers. Yeah. So when, the, when there's this kind of mismatch supply and demand and difficulty in earning an income relative to a fairly high cost of admission, when you think of law school, the fear is really what's happening to my profession. And I think that's the fear that's better to address head on as opposed to, you know, thinking, oh, it must be this company that's eating the lunch of 365,000 solo practitioners. We're just not, you know, we're just not that big. <laughs> not yet, anyway. I took $10 <laughs> each from those lawyers. Yeah. <laughs> I think you can survive the 10 bucks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's, that's good insight. Um, I, I think that's, uh, well, I'll try, I'll try to do my own part to stop using LegalZoom as the boogeyman. <laughs> Fair enough. For the large part, we really haven't addressed lawyers mm-hmm. as an audience. Within We're so focused on our customers, which are small businesses and families. But in the absence of developing a narrative 
people's imaginations and fears have gotten a hold of them. <laughs> That's yeah. why I wanted to be really clear at Clio and at the American Bar Association and all of the state bar uh, summits and meetings that we've been attending that our future is the integration of lawyers into our technology platform. And we will be working with a subset of thousands of lawyers that will become our partners. That's super interesting. So it's not the alternative. We are not the alternative. We will be the technology-enabled lawyer. It's uh, you're the neighbor. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for that for that extra segment and for the conversation. And um, um, thanks a lot. You got it. Take care. You too. Bye, John. This podcast is sponsored by Ruby Receptionists. Now, Ruby is a sponsor, but I was also a paying customer. Ruby answered the phones for my law firm, so I know what I'm talking about when I say you really should give Ruby a try. And you should. Callers regularly told me how nice my receptionist was. Ruby made it easy for me to make my clients feel well cared for when they called. But what really made Ruby stand out for me was the way they treated me. If you've heard me talk about Ruby before, you've probably heard this story already, but when my first daughter was born, I pulled up the Ruby app on my phone on the way to the hospital and updated my status so Ruby would know to hold my calls for 48 hours because I was going to be in the hospital for the birth of my first child. And then a few days later, when I checked in at my office, there was a little care package with a really nice onesie and a rattle and a bib and a couple of other things. And I was just so touched by that, obviously, because I'm still telling the story, and now my daughter is six. But the point is that Ruby knows how to take care of people, both you and your callers, and I'm confident you will be just as happy with Ruby as I still am, because Ruby is still answering the phones now at Lawyerist. So you should give Ruby a try, and to do that, you just need to go to callruby.com lawyerist and sign up, and Ruby will waive the $95 setup fee. And if you aren't happy for any reason, you can get your money back during your first three weeks with Ruby. I'm pretty sure you will stick around, though. But since there's no risk, you might as well try. To make sure you catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast, subscribe to The Lawyerist Podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. You can listen to it at lawyerist.com podcast. You can also subscribe to The Lawyerist Insider, our weekly newsletter. Just go to lawyerist.com and look down the sidebar or click on newsletter up at the top. We'll remind you where to find the podcast whenever we release a new episode. Thanks for listening.